Stanford University. Hello, my name is Robin Wright Dunbar. I'm the Senior Associate Director for Sciences and Engineering at the Center for Teaching and Learning. And it is a great pleasure to welcome you to our presentation today in the award-winning Teachers on Teaching series. As you well know, we're here to hear Professor Umran Enon. Uh, but just a moment before we start that process, I would also like to call your attention to our next in the series. On May 14th, we'll have Professor Stacy Bent from Chemical Engineering speaking on the topic of the undergraduate research experience, friend or foe. So we hope we'll see you uh, again in a couple of weeks. As I said, though, today we're very pleased to have Umran Enon, who's a professor in electrical engineering and also the director of the Space Telecommunications and Radio Science Laboratory, STAR. And he'll be speaking to us as we see here, do you know what they do not know, which is a topic of you know, extreme relevance to student understanding and long-term retention of the information that we're trying to teach. So a, a, a wonderful topic for our conversation today. Umran did his undergraduate work and early graduate work in Ankara, Turkey, before coming to Stanford, where he received his PhD in 1977. This work launched him on a highly productive, wonderful uh, scholarly career. Uh, he is uh, author of nearly 300 refereed publications in his field, uh, several books on electromagnetics, and a 2007 patent. Major contributor, as I say, to the scholarship in the field, and he's been recognized with just a phenomenal number of professional honors. Uh, things such as the Appleton Prize of the International Union of Radio Science and Royal Society of London. He's appointed as a fellow of the American Geophysical Union and a fellow as well of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. He's also had numerous NASA and NSF uh, recognitions of achievement. And I'm actually going to pick up on one of them because it's near and dear to my heart. I don't think Umran knows this. He and I share the distinction of having been awarded a National Science Foundation Antarctic Service Medal. Very different fields, very different experiences, and he still managed to completely one-up me, and I suspect he's one-upped everybody in the room on this one. He also got a mountain named after him in East Antarctica. <laughs> Again, in recognition of service to the field, and in, in his case, in specifically the upper atmospheric uh, phenomena. So we still have time to get our mountain, but he's well ahead of us on this one. So I think that uh, the challenge is out there, and I personally take it as a challenge. As a geoscientist, see, there's also another twist here. You don't get to name something like a formation after yourself. You have to name it after a local geographic feature. So I've always maintained that the only way to get my name on something is to first get my name on a local geographic feature. And Umran is, is right there ahead of me. But enough of that. Uh, the rest of us, as I say, still have time to get our mountain. And really, we want to move on to why we've invited him here today. In spite of all these wonderful, well, not in spite of, in addition to these wonderful accolades that he's received uh, through his field, Umran is a widely recognized, wonderful, and awarded teacher and mentor. And during his years at Stanford, he has mentored over 50 graduate students. And I couldn't even begin to count the number of undergraduates that have intersected uh, his, his classrooms. Numerous awards, again, in this area, the Cox Medal, most recently, for excellence in fostering undergraduate research. And in both the Departments of Electrical Engineering and the School of Engineering, Tau Beta Pi Awards for excellence in teaching. So clearly, Umran has been thoughtfully at this business of thinking about teaching and thinking about learning for many years. Many students have been impacted by his ideas. And he knows a lot about what they don't know. So it was with great pleasure that I turn the podium over to Umran and do you know what they do not know? Thank you. Thank you very much. I very much appreciate the generous introduction that Robin gave me, and I'm very pleased to see the group of students uh, and uh, colleagues here um, that uh, came in in their lunchtime. Um, I think it, it, it's an interesting thing to reflect back on how you teach, because some of it comes naturally and, and uh, it's field dependent. So you don't usually think about why and how you did it that way until somebody asks you to give a talk on it. So uh, it's not that I, you know, I, I formulated these ideas. Uh, but I've always said uh, in colloquial conversations with my colleagues always, uh, from the very beginning, I recognized that one of the most important things is to 
to try to understand your audience. And I, I've seen too many very good scholars, people who you know, might be Nobel Prize winners and who are just absolutely uh, giants in, ter in their area of research, but, but who just assume too much about, uh, about what the students know. So, uh, the, the, and, and when they talk to the student or try to teach it, if you don't know what they are missing, you just can't add that little bit on the side to open up their minds a little bit more. So that's the idea. This is my, my web page in case you wanted to um, uh, go and look at uh, what we do. Um, so the, the main ideas in team, and please interrupt the questions anytime, is that not all great scientists are good teachers. This may not be unfortunate at all. I mean, it, it may be that uh, not everybody has to be a good teacher because sometimes you may be able to be a better scientist if you're not a good teacher. So I, I'm not saying this is a negative thing, but you know, uh, some people are just not, uh, uh, you know, uh, good teachers. And part of the problem, some, some people may have presentation problems or personality problems and so on, but often the reason is that too much knowledge is taken for granted. You just assume that when you say something, the student knows a lot of the background. And I'm not talking about really just in a kind of a dry prerequisites, we have the prerequisites kind of way. I will come back to that in just a minute. Uh, the, the underpinning here is that learning is a process of building and, and, and brick by brick. And we don't really quite click with something unless it is relating to something that we have already been thinking about or maybe uh, you know, in, this, in this brick by brick way. Although this is not brick by brick in a kind of a linear way. Sometimes it could be really nonlinear. In other words, sometimes there could be a lot of different things and one more thing could bring all of them together, for example. So it's not just, just putting the bricks on top of it. It's just what you add that comes and completes something that may have been missing. Now, uh, one, one way to look at this might be that you may say, well, the teacher should know what the students do know and, and, uh, and teach accordingly. Well, there's some problems with this. I mean, this, this is a lot of stuff. So you can't possibly know all that they know. And certainly, also, you cannot tailor the materials to the background. So I, it's not that if I'm, if I'm tasked by the university to teach electromagnetics, for example, uh, and if I think that my students don't have, you know, I look at what they know, and then they don't know all the things that I require, it's not that I'm not going to teach it. I mean, I, I have to. So basically, I'm going to have to teach it in a way where I accommodate and, and compensate for the few things that they don't know. So that's why I often think that it's probably easier to know or realize or attempt to know uh, what they do not know uh, rather than to know everything that they do know. Uh, often people know a lot more than you know anyway. So, uh, so I think, uh, so in the context of what you present, you, you, you need to understand exactly what is it that might be missing. So, so that this affects, you see, the choice of presentation style of the material, not the material, because the material you, you're going to present anyway. You're teaching a class, so you know and you could clown around and not teach it, but but uh, you know you're supposed to be teaching it. So uh, okay, uh, so we discussed this a little bit. Subject thought cannot be tailored to what they do know, but you can tailor teaching style to what they do not know. Typically, and it, 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 typically, it's not just—it's not a whole lot of things. You see, it's, uh, I think typically uh, we are not talking about a mundane list here. We are talking about concepts. So, typically, there are few key concepts uh, are missing, and the student may not have gotten it. Or maybe he ha he should have gotten it in freshman physics, but you have the sense that they don't normally because uh, of one reason or other. Uh, let's say when I teach, I mean, I'm going to use examples in the context of what I have taught. I, I basically, uh, for many years now, about 15 years, uh, I teach other classes too, but the two classes that I teach are electromagnetics. And when I started teaching these as a, as a young professor at the time, uh, anybody else who taught this subject before me got the worst teaching uh, you know, review. So it was a kind of a courageous thing for me to jump into this. Uh, 
I did jump into it after I got my tenure, so I was on a safe uh, situation. But you know, it, it, this is just an abstract subject. I mean, you, you, you guys may say, well, double E is abstract anyway. Yeah, double E is really abstract. Electrical engineering is a hard topic, etc. But inside the electrical engineering curriculum, electromagnetics is the highest level of abstraction. So the three-dimensional things going on, there are electric fields that you cannot touch, and this, uh, people hate it. The math is horrendous. Uh, so uh, you know, people take it because we require it. It's a core course. So I, I taught this four-unit core course that everybody was required to take. You see. So, uh, but I jumped into it, and I think in a few years I, I was quite successful in, in the teaching awards that Robin uh, mentioned. I, I received by teaching this subject. So uh, the examples I'm going to give you are from that subject. But I, I remember again that I, I really didn't think through these things and did it this way. I, but in reflecting back, I can see what aspects of my teaching these higher level of abstraction classes was the most useful. So I think the few key concepts are sufficient as building blocks. And, and, and it turns out even mentioning the blocks in passing greatly elevates understanding the idea. Even if you, if you just say something about the way you take a derivative or the way that vector notation represents something as you say it, I think it, it uh, clicks. Um, usually the things that they don't know are not technical, usually. Usually it's conceptual. So that's important uh, in the context of what's coming up here. Uh, yeah. Usually it also is so simple that people don't ask the question. I mean, it's just there's a level of embarrassment because the question might be so simple, or or, or you don't even know that uh, that's your problem in terms of understanding, uh, say for example, Coulomb's law that we are going to talk about in just a minute. So it's a little subtle in terms of the things that they don't know. Okay, now um, there are of course special challenges in teaching hard sciences and engineering. This doesn't mean that there aren't special sciences in teaching the other sciences. Uh, in fact, there are more challenges in teaching the other sciences, I'm sure, and, and uh, you know, like philosophy and, and so on. But specifically in hard sciences and engineering, there's always uh, you know, the, 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 the dilemma between mathematical rigor versus physical insight. You, you, could, you could describe something in a very hand-wavy way uh, and give them a level of comfort but then they would not have the mathematical rigor to take the next step. At the other extreme, you could just bang, lay on the mathematics, and they have no idea what the equations are really doing, and they could be manipulating it, finding answers in the exams. They still don't know what the equation really means. And, and I, I think that's a very, very big challenge, because a lot of people graduate even from the best schools like Stanford without disability. So the, the other important thing in the in engineering and sciences is the level of abstraction. This depends on the specific subject that you're doing. So for example, if you have to do with um, digital systems where you are sending ones and zeros and so on, uh, then it might be a little uh, easier to relate and, and see. But if you're talking about a three-dimensional field that, that uh, relates to another three-dimensional field and, and you can't see it, that's a higher level of abstraction. So it could be a relational abstraction, conceptual abstraction, or it could be a geometrical abstraction. Geometrical is the easier one to, uh, to feel. Uh, we will see this example, for example. You know, typically, there's a conflict between the measurable things and the abstraction. So force versus field. So it's easier to understand force. It's much harder to understand what a field is for example. Yet, the experiment that describes those things that we do in terms of manipulating field equations are all in terms of the force. Okay. So it, it also helps analogies from everyday experiences because they don't, they don't know the things that you're talking about, but they, they could easily bang relate to the analogies. So we'll, we'll say a few things about that. Uh, sometimes it helps to redu reduce it to the trivial. Uh, for example, you have a very complicated integration that you say, look, this is nothing but a summation. 
it's really not just nothing but affirmation, but I think if he understood that it, it's really at the, at the bottom level, it's like that, and now, now he has to take care of some details of how he comes, he might feel better, he or she might feel better. So what we will do is we'll use electromagnetic concepts as examples for the illustration of this thing. Teaching with the knowledge of what they do not know. Okay, I, I'm not talking about dry recitation and review of prerequisites. I'm talking about no concepts. I'm talking about references to things that they do know. Um, and sometimes I've found that it, it, when the subject is hard and hard abstraction and a lot of math, it helps, and I did this in my books, uh, to have verbose qualitative discussions in the midst of complicated equations, just to give them a comfort level so, so that you throw this equation, they hate it. Now they go into this verbose discussion they're thinking, oh yeah, this is this is like reading a novel now, uh, comfortable. Uh, and 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 I, for example, another thing that I, I do often is very detailed footnotes, like half a page is a footnote sometimes. You know, there's historical remarks. Uh, there's leaving an investigative trail. This serves two purposes. There are the outstanding students who are not bored in that book. They're reading it like a novel, even though there are equations. So now they they find a huge investigative trail that they could go and spend their weekends on, you know, because the footnote is giving so much references. But those are the extreme situations, right? For, 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 the, for the common folks, uh, what we are doing here is to give them a sense of uh, comfort. There's also, I think it helps to, the, we'll sh I'll show you at least one example of this, open-ended philosophical discussion. It helps people to understand that even the hard sciences often has aspects to it, where you could think about it this way, think about it that way, and you can't really resolve which one is correct, because there doesn't need to be a resolution for you to be building things and going to the moon and so on. And it's, it's essentially a philosophical discussion. So, uh, right, another thing that we talked about is sidebar remarks on physical meaning of mathematical operations is always so examples, some examples here. For example, when you talk about electromagnetic waves, electromagnetic waves, nobody can see them. Uh, you can't touch them. You can't feel them. So obviously, this is very, very simple. But uh, you can relate to other waves. That uh, if you talk about electromagnetic waves, you could have long discussions of these other waves that they are like. And when you write electric field equations, you have to realize that they, they don't really, are, they're not comfortable with this notion of the field. Because you know they, they have seen it in Star Trek, right? There is the, 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 the force field and so on. But they don't quite know what it is. Uh, you see, so you have to. It, it helps to have a side discussion on what the field is actually doing. When you write an integral, they can't really physically relate to the quantity. They don't really quite know always that the integral is simply a summation. They don't. They can't relate to the quantity. So, for example, resonant circuit in electrical engineering, there are these resonant circuits. You know, you can have an inductor and a capacitor connect them together, and it becomes a resonant circuit. Well, what is it? Well, it has some properties that uh, you can have them appreciate because the, the, the phenomenon of resonance, of course, is things that the thing that you know brings bridges down, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and another mistake that I see in teaching hard sciences is that people write, write down a physical law without its experimental basis. So it, at that point, it becomes an axiom. So he, they're, just, they're supposed to think, know that that's fact and follow the math and consequences after that, but they don't, they don't have a comfort level with that, you see. OK, so um, one example, this, this is just a historical example from my own background. I, when I was doing uh, my, my bachelor's and master's in, 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 in Turkey, uh, as Robin mentioned, I was interested in signal processing and, and, uh, and the Fourier transforms and so on. And I had a book by uh, this guy, Athanasios Papoulis, who is from Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn. So uh, Fourier transforms, this is an integral. Much of you will not understand it. But in any case, this relates a function to another function. So it, it just says that this function of capital F is the frequency spectrum of F, you see. So F is describing some variation in time. And when I do this integral, the number that I get tells me about the rapidity of variations in that signal. So it describes the frequency content. You can relate to this from first. 
music and acoustics, right? So the, the, you have the violins or the bass or the guitar and so on. The frequency content is absorbed in the signal. But you see, you don't quite know why. I mean, you look at this mathematical expression, you, you say, that's great, and, and he's giving you a proof here. This is about a page or two or so, or so proof. This is a very mathematical book, you see. But you have no idea. And, and uh, in my experience back there in Ankara, Turkey, I went to my advisor, I remember, and I said, look, is, is there a physical uh, book that describes this phenomenon? And he handed me a book by uh, Professor Bracewell, late Bracewell, who later became my very long time friend. And uh, I mean, I was the headmaster in his funeral, for example. So I, I but, but he, he, is a, he was a professor at Stanford. And here's a very, very simple example. So he says, look, that integral, you're multiplying the, the function with the cosine, right? He says, interpretation of formulas. In this book, he has this chapter right there in the beginning. So here's a function that is varied. This could be any number of something versus something else, right? And he's, he's multiplying with the cosine and integrating it. And, and of course, if he multiplies it with the cosine, that has a lot of rapid variations in it. All the, all the positive and negative islands here cancel. You get a very small number. But if he multiplies it with the cosine, that varies with x over the same time or scale that, that, that this function varies, he gets a large integral because it doesn't cancel. So yeah, this, this integral, in fact, gives you information about the rapidity of variation of this, this one because of this physical interpretation. You see. So once you see this diagram, bang, it hits you. Oh yeah, you, you understand what a frequency spectrum is because that's what, you know, that's what you get. I mean, if I had a little glitch here, for example, exactly at that sinusoid that I multiplied, I would have a little glitch right there, and I will get the frequency content of this signal. So he was a very, very, very physical thinker, by the way. He's an extremely famous person that unfortunately passed away. OK, so uh, coming back to this resonant circuit that we discussed. So what can you do? Well, OK, so he, you have uh, electrical engineers draw this diagram as a resistance to inductance capacitance. You know, uh, and and this, this constitutes, uh, if you apply a voltage at the terminals of this, is some oscillation. Uh, the voltage just uh, oscillates uh, back and forth. It's an oscillation frequency that has to do with the values of the capacitor and the inductor. So this is called resonance. Well, but a very, very simple form of resonance, if you just go to Exploratorium in San Francisco, that you have been, right? There's this big pendulum uh, hanging from the, from the ceiling. And if you just go to it, and if you tap it with your little finger, this big ball, uh, and if you tap it just at the right intervals, you can make it go. Because at resonance, the ball wants to oscillate at that frequency anyway. And by tapping it at that frequency, you see, you can make it, make it go into motion. This is very similar to how you can make the capacitance-inductance combination go up to very high voltages with very little voltage applied. So this is an analogy, physical analogy that they can relate to, which I think is very helpful. OK, so uh, some of the material that we are going to have is coming from a book. Another thing that we have in electrical engineering is, uh, is, 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 is something called a transmission line. This is interesting because uh, you know, everything that you have is electrically connected to something else. And we know fundamentally that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. If you had in a laboratory a little circuit like this, you see, uh, everything is connected to one another. And if you apply a close a switch at one end, you can't perceive the fact that it will take some time for the closure of the switch to be communicated to the other end of it because it's happening so quickly that you can't relate to it. I mean, in one nanosecond, it's going to go a foot. But as you introduce this concept, and as you introduce the concept of travel on long discussions, long connections, for example, it's very useful to use the fact that Hoover Dam down in Nevada is producing electricity. And, and if somebody closes and opens a switch in Hoover Dam, the closing and opening of that switch will not be communicated to your plug at Stanford here uh, in instant time. 
it will take some time. So if you keep mentioning that, then you'll understand that when I do something at this end of this board, this other end will not respond instantaneously. In the Hoover Dam example, it might take many milliseconds. In this example, it might take only nanoseconds. But nevertheless, it takes time. You see. So by, by, by giving the analogy, you do benefit from it. The other thing that, as we mentioned, that physical laws are easier to remember if you know their experimental basis. So um, Coulomb's law is a simple law. I mean, you don't have to be at EE to understand it. It just says that two charges attract or repel one another with a force that is proportional to the square of the distance between them. And, uh, and of course, Coulomb did these experiments in 1785. And he used a setup like this, which involved little balls that he charged and some torsions and springs and elaborate experiments, you see, that he, he set up. And uh, when I teach this, I go through this uh, uh, setup. And the students immediately realize that there is no way with this setup, or even a more sophisticated one, that Coulomb could have been sure that the, this, the proportionality of the force was the square of power rather than the cube of power. Or, or maybe it was two and a half, for example, you see. There's no way that he could experimentally, at that point, determine it. And in fact, uh, he, he only got away with it. He, would, he wouldn't even be able to get a PhD, you see, at that point. He only got away with it because People were expecting this law uh, to be true because gravitation was like that. So when you show this to the student, he will never forget about uh, the fact that this is an experimental result and that, uh, that and, and he will, in fact, aspire to do better than Coulomb in his measurements. So let's talk about force versus field. There's a lot. Of, ignore the equations here. Equations are for my own reference. This P1 is a point charge. P2 is another point charge. You bring two charges together, they feel force from one another. The force is given by this equation. Okay? This is a distance, uh, it's some proportionality constant. So uh, the force is measurable. Coulomb was measuring it. You can measure it in the lab. You, you can actually measure it. But usually, we don't talk about electricity in terms of Coulomb's measurable law of force. We talk about electricity in terms of an electric field. And the student doesn't really know what this field is. As I say, they've seen it in Star Trek. So you need to tell him. And, and this is one of those verbose discussions that you can uh, throw in. Uh, so I'm not going to read this. But this says that the notion of a field, although it's abstract, is the most useful way of thinking and working with these problems. It simply, it simply tells us that there's an action at a distance. And, and it's no different than talking about the force. So every time you see the field, you could in fact think about the force if you don't like the concept of the field. But, uh, and, and also it gives historically here a reference to a, a, a giant scientist, uh, Michael Faraday, who was uh, lacking in terms of mathematical ability. Uh, but that was his strength, because he, he thought about these fields emanating from things and connecting to other things. But there is, no, there is really nothing. There, because the charge is feeling force, but he was thinking in, those, in terms of these fields. So we write it in terms of a field. And the field is simply a way of thinking about it, as you can say in this discussion. So it's convenient to think that the source charge produces something at surrounding points, and that this something then interacts with other charges. But there really is nothing, you see. So you really have the basis of the force. Uh, I, I found it extremely useful because when students see this, they say, gee, that was, that was not as bad. Uh, yeah, th this is uh, probably a little more complicated than I want it to be, so I'll jump through this. But integrals often you know, come up. So here's an integral, another integral, another integral, summing things up. And, and often, I think it's useful to have the student think in terms of the integral simply being a summation, even though in any given case, these summations are difficult mathematically to implement. OK, the other thing that, that is often an unasked question, remember I mentioned that there are unasked questions, is uh, validity of mathematical formulas. So I mean, you write this force law between these two charges. Okay. So 
uh, nobody asks this question at, uh, you know, for example, freshman physics uh, or, or uh, you know, or, or high school. People see Coulomb's law in high school, then see it at freshman physics, then see it in my class, right? So, uh, but you see, it's an interesting point. What happens when R is, R is zero? What happens when these two charges are so close to one another that the distance between them is zero? Well, uh, one over something divided by zero is infinity, so the force is going huge at that point, you see? Force is infinite, so they, ha they have no clue how to relate to that, right? And they don't even ask that, you see? Uh, be, 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 because it, it looks flawed right from the beginning. But it's not really flawed because if you make them aware of this nature of macroscopic and microscopic quantities and matter and physics, and if you make them aware that every experiment, everything that you do has a finite size beyond which it couldn't possibly care about. There is something smaller than which I cannot measure, right? So when I talk about these quantities, those two charges cannot be closer to one another than that amount because I, I, I don't know what to do if they are. Because my experiment, my formulation, my quantities, everything is set for that. So once you make them aware of this, in a, this is another one of those verbose discussions uh, where, you, where you say, look, you know, uh, you, uh, here's what, what happens, how you relate to that. Then he now knows, or she, that this never goes to zero. Um, because I, I think he will never ask you that. So another very obvious example is, you know, when you talk about electric potential, uh, voltage, uh, for example, uh, it's very easy to write a formula for this, but it's also very easy to just say, look, it has to do with energy. And, 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 and voltage really is just energy and work per charge. And, and you can, in fact, when you write an expression, you can use notation to reinforce that. So this says, for example, the work that it takes to move something from A to B, that's why there's an arrow pointing from A to B, uh, is given by this, you see. So that's the definition of this. If, if I didn't have A to B, it would, it would confuse whether it's B to A or A to B or whatever. But, but this is uh, by using notation and by having a, a bit of a discussion on the side uh, about the energies involved, uh, then the student uh, are, is with it. Also interesting to use historical tidbits, I said in one of my earlier slides, and, and I think this, this is a fantastic thing. I really uh, learned this from the late Professor Bracewell because he also did this in his book. Uh, if you look at the, big, the great scientists, often uh, you can find uh, things about uh, them that uh, relate to things other than the thing that you're looking at. For example, Laplace's equation, this is just an equation, it means something, right? But much more important than Laplace's equation is Laplace himself, because uh, he, you know, he basically, um, Napoleon, you see, made Laplace Minister of Interior, but when he proved to be rather incompetent in that post, uh, as you can imagine, scientists may often be incompetent in government, uh, uh, pro he promoted him to the decorative position of a senator, you see. So, Interesting things about Laplace, uh, and I've made use of these historical things. Um, Gauss's theorem, uh, I think this probably, I'm running out of time. Let me jump over this. Uh, Gauss is more important than Gauss's theorem. Here, here's Johann Carl Friedrich Gauss. Uh, very interesting. And I, I actually have these pages in my textbook, you see, on electromagnetics. So the student is, just when he's about to cry, about, uh, <laughs> He, he reaches this, this thing about uh, Johann Carl Frederick Gauss, who said, you know, there is a story that when he was told in 1807 that his wife was dying, he looked up from the problem that engaged him and, and muttered, tell her to wait a moment until I'm through. <laughs> okay, so there, there, there are some other things about Gauss that uh, is very important uh, to provide this. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think this is uh, probably we will not have time for this. Conservation of charge. This is a something that even you know people in outside of engineering and sciences would would know. Charge is conserved, um, and uh, there is a law in electrical engineering called Kirchhoff's current law that you can just write down as an axiom. But Kirchhoff's current law is in fact 
an expression of the conservation of charge. So another way of writing Kirchhoff's current law is to simply say, well, I have a volume surrounded by a surface. And, and the inside that volume, I have charge. The amount of charge is increasing with time or decreasing with time. And how much it is increasing or decreasing with time, the only thing that can be determining that is the current that brings the charge into that volume. The current is charge per unit time. So if I integrate current over the surface of this, I'm conserving charge. So that's a simple statement of conservation of charge. And then you can follow this with a footnote about all the things about conservation of charge and how it is relevant and so on. Now he will never forget the experimental underpinning or the fundamental underpinning of this, of this law. You see. So um, the idea is to give him something that he can relate to uh, as you are uh, doing this. Faraday's law of induction, this is very interesting because uh, the discovery here is historically interesting. So Faraday found that if there is a changing magnetic field, it produces a voltage. A lot of people wanted to find it before Faraday. And one of them was uh, Jean Daniel Colladon in Geneva. And you see, he was a very careful scientist. And he set up all these equipment. Uh, and he had two different rooms. You see, he had a magnet in one room and, and something that he read the information in another room. And he didn't have enough money to buy you know, time from his assistants and such. So he was working alone. So he would do something in this room and go to the other room to measure it, you see. During the traverse to the other room, the effect would end. Because, because the effect has to do with the change in time. So since what he did here stopped changing by the time he went to the other room, he couldn't discover Faraday's law. It could have been called Colladon's law. You see. So this, again, it drives home the point that the Faraday's law has to do with the change. And here's another thing about Faraday's law. It's very simple. Half of the students always get this wrong. The, the thing about it is, it, I mean, for you, the law is not important. But it has to do with the fact that when there's a magnetic field represented by this B, and when there's a piece of wire, and if the magnetic field is changing with time, there's a voltage that appears in the front of the wire. This is Faraday's law. What the student cannot relate to is how do you determine the polarity of that voltage? So I usually show this thing, which you know, entertains both possibilities. It could be plus, minus, or minus plus. The current could be going this way or that way. right? Uh, and, and we discuss it. And in fact, we take a walk in class uh, you know, when I show it. It's in the book. They should have read it. Of course, they don't. But uh, by the time they come to the lecture. So, uh, so and, and half of them get it wrong. And, and then. Then I reveal um, the answer, and they, they see why they get it wrong. And they will never forget it. They'll never forget it at that point, because they understand the voting thing and how you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically. Um, so th th this has to do with the fact that I know that they don't know that polarity. They have seen it in high school physics. They've seen it in freshman physics. They've done. They may have A plus in that freshman physics. They've done all the homework. They still don't know that polarity. I know that, you see. And if you don't know that, then you, you could teach it again to them. They could take another A plus, and, and they would still not know. But once they realize the polarity, it's physically extremely satisfying. OK, now, physically extremely satisfying if you're a physicist, of course. <laughs> You, you may not like it here from history. <laughs> OK. So another thing that um, is a good example, I think, is uh, has to do with energy. Everybody can relate to energy. And in electricity and magnetism, there is, of course, energy. Uh, but but, but it's, you can't relate to it. You can't relate to it easily. But you can relate to potential energy and kinetic energy a lot better. So. Here's a, here's a discussion of energy in a book on electromagnetics. We, we talk about, let me lift a flower pot and place it on a windowsill. The work we do against gravity is stored in the form of the potential energy, because that flower pot could fall on your head and be quite destructive. And that would be the energy release that you have put in by lifting it up. So uh, 
it turns out uh, electrostatic energy is very, very similar, uh, although you can't relate to it uh, as much. But in this case, uh, you, can, um, you can discuss it with that introduction. And then the question is, when you lift the flower pot and put it on the windowsill, it keeps energy. We know that because if you push it, it falls. But where is the energy? Right? Is it in the flower pot? Or, or is, it, is it in the field, the distance between ground and it? Where is it? So uh, it, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Um, and and uh, you know, same question comes up in electromagnetics. You have, in fact, these two equations show me that there are two different ways of looking at the energy. You could look at the electri electrical energy as if it was in the charges, the flower pot. Or you could look at it as if it was in the electric field, this abstract quantity that represents force and so on, that uh, is surrounding the charges, just like the gravitational field. Now, that's a very good discussion to raise. And then it's also a good, dis a good discussion to not uh, see both points of view have merit. And it is neither necessary nor possible to determine which one is correct. This is a very good, almost philosophical discussion. Because in fact, it is not possible to determine where it is. Because, and, but, 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 but the fortunate thing is, it's not necessary to determine where it is for us to build things with this stuff. And there's a very nice discussion here on uh, how they can follow up. If they didn't like it, uh, what I said, they could go and read the Feynman lectures of physics and other books. And, and uh, uh, so, OK. Uh, there are some very difficult concepts in, in, in three-dimensional electromagnetics, and one of those is uh, the curl. Uh, curl, it, it just has to do with the circulation of the electric and magnetic fields, the way they encircle one another. And, and uh, even the best students cannot really physically relate to it. But it turns out, and I learned this from Professor Hugh Skilling, who was the chairman of the electrical engineering department here for 14 years, before my time, but I met him. Uh, and, and he had this paddle wheel analogy. You see, this is a, his hand-drawn paddle wheel with all the shadowing and so on, and you can see, so, uh, exquisite. Uh, and the paddle wheel, if you place it on a, on a water flow, let's say this is the riverbed and this is the surface, and you know, because the riverbed is here, the water actually flows a little faster on top and not as much at the bottom because there's friction here. So the, the, the flow rate, is, is these arrows, the size of the arrows describe the speed with which the water is flowing. It's flowing faster up here, slower down here. So when you put this paddle wheel in that water flow, it turns. You see, it, it twirls at some rate. That, it turns out, is this mathematical operation that we call curl. This, I mean, nobody forgets this, because it, it, it's just turning the paddle wheel rather than all these equations. That, uh, and, and you see, you can also show them that the paddle wheel, if you had a bend in the water flow, there could be a situation where the paddle wheel could just simply float through this without twirling. You can see it, it, it won't twirl here. It will come here. And if the force over here was a little, a little more and so on, it would make this turn without twirling. So it measures a, a very interesting, complicated property of a field. And, and the water analogy really brings it nicely. Okay. Uh, another example here, electromagnetic waves. So we talked about this. Now, this is really electromagnetic waves. People, of course, utilize it and radio, TV, and so on. But, uh, but you don't really, you can't quite uh, relate to it. Uh, we have a set of equations that predict the electromagnetic waves. We know that they exist. But uh, we know, for example, that when we start a little disturbance at this place of the dashed line, and, and with a little antenna, for example, that that disturbance will, will, will propagate in, in every direction and will be observed at later, farther away points at later times. That's how we know electromagnetic waves propagate. But, but it really, literally, is sight unseen fields generating one another, propagating via empty space. They, in fact, produce energy and momentum at these distant points, obviously. 
but uh, it's very difficult to relate to. But in fact, in actual fact, the, this propagation is very similar to uh, all the other ways that you could think of. For example, if you had a slinky, and it was out like this, and it, it assumes a certain position, and then if you pluck one end, right, the disturbance will propagate on the slinky. Uh, the slinky's wire will not propagate, it will be here, you see. Same thing if I just had, for example, a, a rope tied on that wall, and if I just did this to the rope, the disturbance on the rope will propagate. The rope will not propagate. Similarly, if I dropped a pedal, pebble into a, a, a water, the water molecules will go up and down, right? And that cannot happen without the adjacent molecules also going up and down, and without the adjacent one also going up and down. So this up and down motion goes to the shore. The molecules of water don't go to the shore. The up and down motion goes to the shore, you see. So in that case, there is a medium which carries the wave. Very important. Another example of a wave, waves don't have to be like things that you can surf on, right? A tsunami is a wave. A wave is something that replicates itself at a later point in space, at a later point in time. So these are very good examples that then comes back to this and say, look, my, my physics is that I cannot have an electric field without having a magnetic field. So therefore, if I make an electric field here, it must make an electric field around it. That then makes an electric field around it. That then makes a magnetic field. That, that's why it's just like the pebble. I've just dropped the pebble. Electromagnetic waves are now propagating. Um, because I, it, it, you, you have to realize that they don't really know how to relate to these Python themes. Okay, I think that uh, I should stop here because you said 45 minutes. Um, so, in summary, I think basically what I would um, like to leave you with is the idea that if you teach, if you have teaching in your career coming up, please be aware of what they don't know. Uh, and and, and you, can, you can be aware of that by thinking of yourself as to what you didn't know if you you know, learn that subject, or if it was another subject that you're teaching, you have to do a little investigation. And, and often, it's not the prerequisites that we are talking about, so it, it's really the, the concept. Uh, and, and I think that one of the best examples is the field example that I gave, because most people don't really relate to it in the right way. They can tell you, they can write equations, they can manipulate it, get their A+, plus, but they just don't have the concept. So, uh, thank you very much. Yes. Uh, I have a question. I don't know anything about E or any of that. I just had a question about this potential energy. Could you ask, and it's content-based, could you ask when the energy is instead of where? Uh, when like I can ask question? when it was. You were I talking about, you say we don't know where the energy is, but when is when it's going to, when it falls, that's yeah. a when. I can ask when the energy was applied or discharged. Yes, sure. I can, uh, I can. I can determine precisely when the energy was applied or this, if it was stored energy when it was released. Of course, no, no conceptual problems there. Uh, the where is the question. Yes. Yeah, I was just wondering, uh, you find it all be useful, uh, say, on the first day of class, just to stand up and ask the students, all right, here are some concepts that do you feel comfortable with these? Or, or maybe just even a little quiz in the first day and just uh, sort of a, I just sort of gauge uh, uh, their level of knowledge, or is that, that is there, no, that I can imagine work. problems with that. So I can wondering. see that working, but I, that doesn't work for me. It's the look in the eyes that works for me. <laughs> uh, I, I, basically, when I'm talking, I see, <laughs> I see that it's empty. Yeah. I mean, it's just not following it. I, I can see that. Before I say the next thing, I can see that. So I think making eye contact, having a relatively small room, and making eye contact, in my opinion, is extremely important. Okay. Yes, please. Uh, so you taught E&M for quite some time. Yes. Uh, were there some years where you did any experiments to see if the way that you presented it clicked more with students, or has it always been basically you found a good way to represent No, no, I kept improving. I kept improving, and then I made a mistake. For example, I, 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 I tried PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> that didn't work because 
you see, when you put up something, uh, and, and all the equations are there, and, and before you introduce this one, they haven't seen this one, it turned out not to not work. And I switched back to actually writing things on the board because the slow writing of it is what the students needed in terms of the pace that they accepted it. And, they, and, I, and I, these sidebar remarks, and I felt myself that I was able to be much more conscious and able to say those as I was writing because I had to say something when I was writing. So uh, I was saying a lot more of those, those things. Uh, and it appeared, bang, you know. You, so PowerPoint, I think, for classroom presentation is, is quite dangerous unless you're really conscious of being slow and so on. Just a, a quick question. You've raised a new way for me, I think, to think about anticipating in your lecture design, which is I might advise people to stop and think, what should you ask? You know, what, what, what would be good questions? What, what, what might students ask at this point? But you've actually raised it to a new low, which is what won't they ask? Yes. yes. And do you feel tension? It's clear that what, what they won't ask may be very important to you. Have you felt tension? And how have you dealt with the fact that that might then really take more time? That's a, that's a derailing moment. Yes. Well, I think the one component of the don't ask is maybe character of the student, embarrassment, and so on. But a, a bigger component of the don't ask is probably the fact that he doesn't know that he doesn't know. You see, they don't know that they don't know. I mean, basically, this turned out to be an unknown, unknown kind of thing. But, but yeah, it, it really, literally is. The r equals to 0. You know, what happens when the distance is 0, the force blows up? Thing. So many people told me, fantastic, you know, I'm so, so pleased you said that because they knew what in the back of their minds that they would never ask that question. They would never really ask it. I, I, it's interesting. I, I think most of the time they don't know that they don't know. Any other questions? Yes. I guess that kind of begs the question. I mean, you, you've identified a couple sort of unknown unknowns. But it seems like you're still, I mean, in any other subject, you're going to have things that you don't know that they don't know that they don't know. Yes, yes. So how do you, do yeah. you have any tips for dealing with that, basically? I, I think that it's a constant education and feedback process that you talk with the student, and, and maybe you teach the class once, and, and then you ask them how they felt about it, do they really feel. My students, as they left this electromagnetic class, a lot of them would come and tell me, do you really, I really think I understand it. You know, I know the experimental basis now. I know how to relate to it. But in the very beginning, it wasn't like that. So I kept learning from it, you know, what, what is missing. So yes, the first time you're getting called and teach a subject, uh, you may have to guess. Uh, but then you correct. It's a constant process of education. Teaching is a constant process of education itself, in my opinion. So the teacher is educated constantly as he teaches. It's a wonderful place, I think, to leave. Thank you very much. Okay. And again, we appreciate For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.